It's a, such a weird question to ask people yeah. in moments like this, you know, even acknowledging that we're far removed from it. But you still when you see these images or videos or read people's accounts of what they're going through and dealing with, just how can you, you know, really fully live your life? Right. You just that you got to center that there's like a moral obligation to center it and kind of carry some of that grief, not patting myself or anyone else on the back for doing it, but just like. It's fucking horrible, man. What about you? Yeah, no, same. Uh, you know, like you, yeah, like you said, we're we're far removed from any from any violence or horror, but just being being immersed in this news cycle and trying to follow the the ongoing events, uh, especially in in Gaza right now, and I mean, not only just seeing the the nonstop horror of that, like I've seen really upsetting footage of you know I. Uh, kids being pulled out of the rubble of buildings and the absolute desperation that people are living through in, in Gaza right now. But also just seeing this like cycle of discourse playing out right now, which I think is just so toxic and backwards and seeing the ways that, um, you know, I think this, this narrative has kind of been manipulated to justify the, the violence on the part of the Israeli government that we're seeing right now and seeing, I think people going along with that and seeing all the, the people right now, the celebrities, the, everyone that's, that's, uh, you know, is standing with Israel at this time and posting the Israeli flags. And it just, it, I think it's designed, I can't fathom how you would feel actually being in Gaza or being in Palestinian and, and seeing the ways that the, struggles of Palestinian people and the the violence that they live under constantly is just totally ignored uh in these moments and all the time but I think anyone that that pays attention to this conflict seeing this cycle play out yet again and seeing just the relentless support from our political leaders as Israel just completely bombs Gaza into the fucking ground uh killing how many countless uh, hundreds of people including women and kids and indiscriminately it's it's just it's really, really horrific, and it, it 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 can really make you feel crazy um, when you see this this cycle of discourse playing out again, and the way people seem to be falling into the in time, time and time again uh, supporting it. Fourteen hundred plus Palestinians have already been killed. Sixty two hundred plus, at least, have been injured. Three hundred thousand have been displaced. The UN, who has been doing aid work in there, has said twelve of. Uh, their workers have been killed. The Red Crescent, uh, you know, medical aid group has had their ambulances attacked, their medics killed, shutting off the power, shutting off utilities. Communications are are spotty if they're intact. Reporters who are in Gaza have seen accounts of them handwriting some of their dispatches and running over to 
an undisclosed location where there is still power, where they can actually publish their work. Um, the scale uh, of the damage of the horror of the killing, like we really won't have a full accounting for, for a while, especially now that they're soon going to be in total blackout. That affects hospitals, that affects aid workers, that affects people's livelihood. Anyone who needs anything for life support, for medical care, like th- you're going to see all of those numbers multiply. And that is not often present or certainly not centered in our in our media, in in the in broadcast, in mainstream, in legacy press in the United States, it is it is only about uh, what Hamas did to Israel, which, as we said uh, earlier this week in our conversation with Ryan Grimm, and we reiterate today with our guest Omar Badar, that's heinous. Yes, nobody wants that. Nobody celebrates that. And just as we are appalled by any innocent civilians being killed. Uh, we want that same humanity and that dignity applied to anybody in Gaza. It's just, it's heartbreaking to see just completely one-sided coverage. It's, it's truly disgusting. It's something we talked about with, uh, on, on the previous episode and in this episode with uh, Omar Badar, who we were really happy to have come on to talk about us, uh, talk to us um, about this issue today. But yeah, it's just the total asymmetry in how we talk about violence. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've been really um, uncomfortable with the ways that it seems like a lot of people have taken this opportunity to sort of browbeat browbeat people who are taking this moment to stand up for Palestinians and stand up for Palestinian human rights and humanity and kind of browbeat them for not condemning enough. You know, why must, why can, why don't you condemn? You've not condemned Hamas enough to my liking, or, you know, do you implicitly support that? And it's just, it's so unhelpful. It's something that's never demanded. I think this is an important point as well. This, these demands for condemnation, I just never, it doesn't, it only gets extended towards uh, Palestinians in this case. No, at, no one would find it reasonable if uh, like a Jewish person were to go on the news media to talk about Israel, if first and foremost, do you condemn the violence of the Israeli government? Do you condemn the IDF? Look at this this latest atrocity that happened. You know, as we talked about, there's this nonstop stream of violence directed towards civilians and kids in Gaza. It's been going on for years and years and years. And this is just never applied. You know, no one is expected to, to make these condemnations. Do you condemn this? And it, which is frankly is something we maybe should be asking, considering our governments are supporting and subsidizing this kind of violence. So, I mean, that's that's the whole reason that whole line of discourse is maybe uncomfortable this week. I think it's there's been this completely kind of false equation that's taken place, regardless of whatever horrors that that we've seen. Um, but when we talk about this, we do have to remember that this is not like a war or a conflict where there's two sides. And, well, you know, I'm taking this really brave stance to acknowledge that both sides have done bad things. And, you know, the Israeli government does bad things and Hamas does bad things. But we're still kind of creating, we're contributing to sort of a narrative there where we suggest that these are two equal powers that have equal ability to do things, which is just completely not accurate. Like we talked about in this conversation with Omar, you know, I mean, the Palestinians, they don't have an army. They don't have tanks or planes. They don't, they're not going to have the ability to fight war on this, on this kind of battlefield. This is a besieged people that have been living in this, under this occupation for decades. The, the Gaza has been this open air prison camp for decades. And this is the, this is the reality. This is not two equal sides that each have power. 
And that's the thing that I try to point out in this conversation. And every time that I talk about this, absolutely, we do need to condemn violence against innocent people, especially children. What what we lose, though, when we have these conversations is that the source of this, this kind of violence that we're seeing is coming from the occupation. It's coming from apartheid. What we're seeing right now is the violence of colonialism, you know, and I think we should be able to condemn that. And but instead we do this, have this kind of brow beating, moralizing. Uh, and when people have when people organize or promote solidarity protests or, or try to support Palestinians, they get accused of, you know, supporting Hamas. I think that's really not helpful. And it's it's not an accurate way of framing, you know, what this situation is really about. Yeah, it's it's rare that people even mention the, the suffering that Israel's military, which, as we, you've mentioned, has the backing of the world's superpowers, basically, uh, what they're doing to people, women and children, according to latest reports, over like half of the, the people who have been killed in these airstrikes have been women and children. It's rare that anybody in any prominent position in the Israeli government or even past Israeli government gets asked about it. But someone on Sky News did. A reporter asked uh, the former Israeli prime minister, Naftali Bennett, what about those Palestinians who are in the hospital on life support and babies and incubators that will have to be turned off because Israelis have cut the power to Gaza? And Bennett replied, are you seriously asking me about Palestinian civilians? What's wrong with you? Uh, and what about those Palestinians in hospital who uh, are on life support and babies and incubators whose uh, life support and incubator will have to be turned off because the Israelis have cut the power to Gaza? Are you seriously keep on asking me about Palestinian civilians? What's what's wrong with you? They can't even acknowledge it. and I, They're confronted with the realities of what Israel is doing. And they just rebuke it. They deflect. And you also see that on a much lower level. You see that with Americans trying to, quote, show support for Israel. There's a couple instances over the past few days which are kind of morbidly humorous. Jamie Lee Curtis posted a, a picture on her Instagram, a fire from the sky of, of children looking up to the sky and cowering, thinking it was – uh, Israeli children, but when people pointed out that was in Gaza, she deleted yeah. the post. Suddenly, it's it's okay. It's then. no longer yeah. worth offering sympathy for. <laughs> Very funny. J Justin Bieber posted a picture on his Instagram story yesterday of Gaza from a couple of years ago that said "Pray for Israel." And then when people pointed out that was Gaza, he deleted it and then just reposted the words pray for Israel, which, okay, we're just not going to acknowledge that this is a very real problem that you all are ignoring. They're confronted with it. And they have these moments like, Oh, should I also care about this? Yeah. No, I'm just going to go back to square one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, something that, that came up also in this conversation we're about to have with Omar is um, this claim that like, why are you focusing on Israel? Why the focus on Israel? This is often used as a way to kind of delegitimize, um, support for Palestinian people or suggest that it's inherently uh, anti-Semitic, um, which is, I think it's important to address that, you know, why focus on Israel? And I think like, we don't even need to focus on Israel. We do need to focus on it right now because of the violence that we're seeing, which we support and we pay for it and we subsidize it and we give them full diplomatic cover to commit this violence. But this kind of monopoly on violence, it's not just about Israel. Like we see the same thing domestically. We see the same thing like with police, like police forces in America and the way that they have this monopoly on violence and that our violence is justified, the daily violence that the police inflict on people, both in the streets, shooting people in the streets, 
or in putting them in the vast uh, barbaric prison system in the United States. The police have full monopoly on this kind of violence. And anytime that violence goes back in the other direction, the police are affected by it. Then the whole world has to stop and we have to back the blue and we did have the big parades full of police cars. Um, and, th- and this is how we talk about it. And, you know, this is, this is how we sort of dehumanize people or suggest that they're worthy of being victims of violence or they're not worthy of being remembered or, or spoken for. But when, you know, when certain, when violence happens against other people, that's when we need to really focus on that. You see that also like not just with Israel or, but with the U S government as well, or the word, any, any part of the sort of like NATO or the rules based international order that's going out to invade Afghanistan or Iraq or, destabilize or overthrow the Libyan government or, you know, fund proxy wars in Syria or Ukraine or wherever. Um, you know, we have full right to do this. We have full ability to do this. But, you know, yes, someone that's in Afghanistan or Iraq or someone that picks up a rifle or a grenade or even a rock to try and uh, fight back against the people that are invading their country. And then they get treated as a terrorist. They get put in Guantanamo. They get their entire cities get bombed. Um, I think this is part, this is like the violence of imperialism really is what we're talking about. It's not just, it's not just about Israel. It's not just about the U S government, but you see this everywhere. You see it domestically with the police. You see it in Israel and our, our kind of proc, these kind of proxy governments. Uh, and you see it in the violence of the the military as well and in other places. And that is something that we need to be aware of this kind of total asymmetry and who is, who is able to wield violence and, and when do, when can we lecture countries about human rights or any of these things when we have total impunity to, to wage violence wherever we deem this, this uh, imagined threat? You know, I think that's something that we really need to think about and unpack. Absolutely. Well, let's get into our conversation with uh, Omar Badar because he, he's just he's such a fantastic, just brilliant mind who really helped has helped me just through following him seeing what he has to say, what he has to offer. He's a Palestinian American uh, political analyst who just has really great insight. He spoke with us uh, at length today, which is, which is really great. I mean, obviously heartbreaking, but a really good conversation with Omar. I think you all are really going to like it. Yeah, it was really fantastic. Uh, Thanks everyone for listening to the show. As always, if you want to hear previous episodes or some of our bonus content, uh, you can do so at insurgentspod.com. Um, that's where you can find all of that. And we appreciate everyone that tunes into the show and supports the show. Thank you so much. And, uh, let's get to our conversation with Omar Badar. He is going to be joining the show right after this. joined by Omar Badar, a Palestinian-American political analyst, a great person to follow, to listen to. This is somebody I've followed for years, and I really appreciate your insight and analysis, Omar, and especially especially in difficult moments like this, which unfortunately seems all too common these days. Uh, Omar, I mean, all things considered, how are you? How are you holding up? Thank you, Jordan. No, I really appreciate um, being on your show as always. And yeah, it's it's uh, kind of hard to describe how I feel a little bit right now, just kind of running on um, fumes of, of, of needing to insert the correct narrative about what's unfolding because it is incredibly horrific. And yeah, just haven't slept and, and 
infuriated endlessly by mainstream media coverage on this, which is why I appreciate that you guys are doing this. Yeah, it seems in these moments we see the same playbook rolled out. It is just a hyper focus on Israel. I mean, we saw it in, in 2021. We see it every time there is a, a flare up, a skirmish, a war, whatever term you want to give these moments. We see the same thing. It's it is a hyper focus on Israel and this is just at the onset, because there has been a lot of bad faith commentary. Nobody is out there. No rational person is out there celebrating or justifying or trying to defend, cheering on anything that Hamas did. And in retaliation for anything or just any any act of aggression uh, unprovoked by Israel is you never see the lives, the humanity the suffering of people in Gaza, Palestinians at large, centered in our media. And, and, you know, as somebody who's been, unfortunately, paying close attention to the news this week, could you give some examples of of these types of moments and how that pro-Israel bias in Western media has really warped the the coverage? Look, I think that you're absolutely right in in pointing out that this is a very, very long pattern of we have the entire population – um, in Gaza is placed under a brutal siege where, you know, electricity is very, very limited, where it, they can't trade with the outside world, they can't go in and out, um, they don't have access to medical equipment to treat cancer because Israel does not allow it in. Um, you have virtually no access to clean water. 97% of the water in Gaza is not fit for human consumption. You're looking at a very, very dire situation. And Whenever Palestinians try to challenge that siege in any way to try to break out of what amounts to a massive concentration camp, um, Israel responds with brutality and violence. That has been the trajectory. And even when in 2018, when Palestinians marched without weapons, unarmed, um, to defense to try to demand an end to the siege, Israeli snipers opened fire on them, uh, killing hundreds of people, including medics and journalists um, and activists. It's really Palestinians are being put in a situation in which there is immense suffering under successive Israeli war crimes, and we don't see their humanity. We don't see their coverage. They're not even deemed worthy. It's as if anything that happens to Palestinians doesn't even happen at all. And the media only pays attention if there are Israeli victims of violence. And this is precisely what we just witnessed, where suddenly there is a horrific attack. You know, it's honestly, a a two-pronged attack. The the part of it that is an attack on Israeli soldiers is technically legitimate under international law. These are people who are resisting their illegal siege and occupation, and that's fine. The attacks that spilled over into um, an assault, a murderous assault on Israeli civilians, is obviously completely unjustified, and a war crime as well. But that's where the coverage begins. It's, It's over and over again, as if nothing happened until this happens. And then you have it on a loop, the... Um, extent of the human tragedy, interviews with the parents of people who have been lost. And that just goes on and on in a way that we never see when it comes to Palestinian victims of Israeli brutality and war crimes, even though Israeli war crimes are far greater in scale. It's not even comparable. Nothing even comes close. And more importantly, that Israeli crimes are the fundamental driving force of this entire conflict and violence, that if it were not for Israel imposing an illegal siege, an apartheid, an occupation on Palestinians, 
we would not even be here in the first place. And that's that's incredibly disheartening. Well, that's exactly what I find really frustrating about sort of the browbeating we've seen this week, where some a lot of people have taken this opportunity as this excuse to sort of discipline the left for, I guess, not being not being uh, righteous enough in their condemnations of, of of you know attacks against Israeli civilians. And I think that's really frustrating. Like you pointed out, Omar, um, there's a number of examples of nonviolent protests that Palestinian people and their supporters and, and people that are in solidarity with them around the world have taken part in over the years that are met with, uh, you know, condemnation, demonization. I was, I've been thinking about the aid flotilla in 2013 or 2014 that was attacked by the IDF. I'm thinking about the whole BDS campaign, which is a nonviolent campaign of, you know, targeting certain products that are made in these illegal settlements. The whole purpose of this campaign is that it's nonviolent and it's a way that people can try to influence this uh, this horrible uh, apartheid system uh, and try and call attention to it. You know, that's demonized. That's called anti-Semitic or whatever it is. Um, there's, as you pointed out, the Great March of Return, uh, which was, you know, this this peaceful march, nonviolent as well, which was targeted by Israeli snipers. People were deliberately maimed and nurses and journalists and civilians were were shot and killed with no international outcry and yeah that's the thing that's i think in these moments really makes you feel insane when you see then the whole world come to a halt and every all the celebrities are are chiming in and posting israeli flags and our all our political leaders are so stern in their denunciations of the violence and their their uh their condemnation of it and their insistence that Israel has this never ending right to defend themselves, which as we've talked about, when we say, when our leaders say that Israel has a right to defend itself, we're talking about killing civilians. We're talking about bombing Gaza and bombing residential neighborhoods. And uh, that's, yeah, that's been the very frustrating thing about this week. These, this kind of this, this, the way that people have tried to sort of use this as a way to condemn people on the left for being supportive of violence and terrorism when, you know, it, Everyone should be against the killing of innocent people, especially children. And it's become somehow controversial to say, you know, if you're against kids being killed, uh, you know, predominantly Palestinian kids, but also Israeli kids as well are victims of this violence. That's the violence of the occupation. That's the violence of apartheid. And it's become somehow controversial to point that out. Or when someone like Rashida Talib or anyone else takes this stance that this violence is horrible and it must be condemned. And the, you know, if we want the violence to stop, the occupation has to stop. That's, that should be to me a non-controversial statement, but that's been used as this way to demonize people and to say that people support terrorism and all this horrible stuff. I, I think it's been a really depressing week and seeing this, this discourse play out just time and time again. Yeah. And, and think of the racism of that, right? People are being condemned for suggesting that Palestinian lives and Israeli lives should matter equally. That's what's considered a pro-terrorist mindset. Yeah. It's 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 utterly it's it's insane. It really is. It's a, it's a climate that is deeply depraved, and you have a situation in which the American political establishment is obsessed with the rights of occupiers and oppressors to self-defense, but never, ever a word about Palestinians' right to defend themselves. It just doesn't exist. It doesn't enter the lingo. It's an extremely tilted situation. It's a and and. More outrageously, with Israel's current conduct, which is a campaign of mass terrorism against Gaza civilian population, that is precisely what we're witnessing unfold right now. And for the first time, by the way, I've never used the word genocide to describe the way Israel treats Palestinians. Um, legal technicalities aside, I 
always thought, uh, I don't want people to dismiss something as an exaggeration or this or that, like, you know, just trying to use measured words. This is the first time in which I think we're coming very, very close to that term being apt with the rhetoric of Israeli leaders talking about a population of 2 million people in Gaza being animals and deserving to have water and electricity and food cut off from them with all these threats to flatten Gaza coming from Israeli leaders and from American politicians as well, this full endorsement of it. And with the fact that there is now this commitment on Israel's part that there will not be a return to the status quo from before this crisis. Now think of the insanity of that once more. The pre-existing status quo is one in which Palestinians were a captive population without any rights that Israel controls completely, but where there is occasionally some violent activity that Israel can't completely control. And that's the status quo that Israel views as unacceptable for Israel instead of being unacceptable for Palestinians to be living that way. And with that commitment, I think we're, we're about to witness uh, a scale of atrocities that we've never seen before in Gaza. It's a horrific situation, and this full-scale endorsement from the American political establishment is um, honestly a horror show. The level of, of, it's not hypocrisy as in they care about one thing and not the other. It's more the self-contradiction in their pronouncements of, no matter what Israel does to Palestinians, nothing could justify Hamas's attacks on civilians, correct? But then the following sentence is, because of the way Hamas behaves, then Israel's attacks on Palestinian civilians are justified. That is literally what they're saying. It's, it's, it's utter madness, and honestly, it demands every single person who knows what's really going on to speak up, to challenge it in every way possible, because I think very, very dark things are on the horizon, and it merits an intervention. We're in a situation where the powers cut off to to Gaza. They I mean they're they're striking residential buildings, uh, ambulances. They're telling people to leave through uh, a southern exit. They're they're airstriking that. And on the the rhetoric part, I, think I really can't underscore enough just how horrifying some of the stuff that is broadcast on on cable news without any pushback. You know, Max Miller, representative in Ohio, when talking about. Uh, Rashida Tlaib flying a flag in Congress said he would he won't even call the Palestinian she was flying the the Palestinian flag in Congress and he said what he didn't want to call them a country they're just a territory and they'll soon be eradicated because they're going to turn it into a parking lot like that is it definitely resembles you know post 9-11 rhetoric uh and and this this foaming at the mouth by some of these these hawks it is really scary because it like you say it removes the humanity from people who are suffering, who are dealing with this, not just in airstrikes and what could soon be a, a ground invasion, but you know, the, the cutting off of utilities, striking communications towers, striking ambulances, hospitals are overrun, hospitals are without resources, food being prevented uh, entry. I mean, could you talk about how wide scale and malicious the Israeli actions are just to show how how horrifying this can get. Even before this crisis, Gaza was in the midst of a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, as I mentioned, 97% of the water in Gaza is undrinkable. Half the population in Gaza is unemployed. Half the population of Gaza is children. Um, death is rampant. Disease is rampant. People, it's, it's just a hellscape to begin with. And it's precisely the kind of despair that produces the violence that we actually saw. When people see that there's no prospect for freedom, you know, this is the the, the insanity of, of, of Western expectations on this, is that Palestinians tried to negotiate for peace 
Um, Israel did not give a shit about the diplomatic um, talks, used them as cover while they continued expanding more and more settlements throughout the occupied territories, entrenching the occupation further and further. So then Palestinians go, okay, this isn't working. Uh, let's do economic boycotts. And you can see how those are demonized in the U.S., where, you know, if you boycott Israel or Israeli products or even the products, as you mentioned, of settlements, and by the way, settlements are war crimes under international law. If you merely boycott settlement products, there are, you know, over a dozen states where that's punishable by the government, that boycotting a foreign country's war crimes is something that is considered unacceptable. And then Palestinians resort to going to the UN. The US has stepped in to veto more than 50 UN resolutions that attempted to hold Israel accountable. So Israel, so the U.S. is preventing any kind of international accountability for Israel. Palestinians go to the International Criminal Court to try to pursue charges for Israeli war crimes. The U.S. applies pressure on the ICC and prevents them from, from pursuing those charges. Literally, the expectation is that Palestinians are supposed to shut the fuck up, lay down, and die. That is the expectation. Accept that you are not human beings. Accept that you do not have access to any kind of basic human rights that anybody else is entitled to in the world. You are prisoners under the boot of military occupation, and you should consider yourself lucky that we're letting you even stay in that condition. And if you dare challenge it in any meaningful way, then mass slaughter is coming and you're going you're gonna to deserve what you're going to get. That is the mindset. Yeah, with full backing of the, the rules-based international order. The people who claim to care about democracy and human rights and Biden talking about uh, human rights first foreign policy, yeah, clearly for human rights for some and yeah, not the others. the human rights that defenders is, is have logged on. And, and by the way, I'll just mention one thing on, on that note. The entire policy on Ukraine and Russia, right? The U.S. has to arm Ukraine so that they can defend themselves from Russian invasion and occupation. But somehow when it comes to Palestine and Israel, American policy is you have to arm and fund the occupiers who are imposing that foreign occupation and invasion. Yeah. Where is the consistency in that? What, what, I mean, the shamelessness of it is, is just really breathtaking. Yeah. I mean, not to go too far down that road. That's why I've always been kind of very uncomfortable trying to draw parallels between uh, Ukraine and Israel, considering they're both being armed and backed by the same group of people. I think it, that, that in and of itself makes it a completely different situation that, are, that it's not really analogous in any way. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of these like there, – there's been this wave of propaganda, and I want to try and talk about this without suggesting that nothing bad has happened or that no one has been harmed or, or anything like that. You know, I'm not saying that, but there have been a number of stories now, a whirlwind of stories, uh, lies that are being told right now over the last couple of days. There was that woman, I mean, early on, like uh, when this, when this news was breaking about this music festival, there was this German woman that got held up as the avatar of, of this kind of like violence against civilians and she was assaulted and dragged through the streets. I think she was, that was the words that were kind of used. And then that turned into a whole story about these kind of roving Arab rapist gangs, which is deeply racist and, and a, a long history of using that trope to justify violence against uh, people. Uh, that woman later turned out to still be alive in fact, and in a hospital in Gaza. Um, there was this whole, you know, incident over the last couple of days about babies that was, that had, you know, it's, it's really upsetting to even talk about, but the way that this is used then to, you know, it gets picked up by one journalist, this thing gets, gets repeated by the IDF, it gets picked up by one foreign journalist, and then it turns into this big international outcry. 
And then that's a fact that the president of the United States is talking about that that later gets kind of walked back. He claims he watched the video. Yeah. He claims he watched the video of it happening before later admitting that he never saw it, which is not it's not something you're going to you would forget seeing. <laughs> yeah. And again, I, I don't want to sit here and deny that that anything bad has happened, but I do think it's it's really disgusting the way that these stories have been really promoted so heavily and used to completely, uh, you know, distance anyone from the idea of any any kind of Palestinian solidarity or to discredit the entire movement of Palestinian liberation. Um, and like you're pointing out, Omar, the intense hypocrisy with like using this story about children and, and murdered children and babies to justify the bombing of this residential neighborhood. Like I've seen dozens of videos now of Palestinian kids being pulled out of rubble it's absolutely horrifying and people are celebrating that the very people that are spreading these stories are celebrating this and they think it's good and our governments are backing this. And, and it's the, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's really upsetting to see uh, the way that this has been, yeah, again, used to delegitimize the whole idea of Palestinian liberation in the first place. And the fact that the people that claim to care about, you know, deaths of children or civilians are then turning around sometime in the same sentence, the very same day, and then celebrating this when it's visited upon Palestinian people. I think it's just really grotesque. Yeah, look, on on the on that note, there's no denying, right, that Hamas did commit atrocities against civilians. That much is self-evident. But that might not be enough for the propaganda machine to justify what Israel is going to do. And what they need is far more graphic and outrageous stories of rapes and beheadings and this and that in order for the genocidal rhetoric to seem not so bad by comparison. That is what they're trying to do. And the Israeli government's word should never be taken for anything as a source. And that, I think, is another problem in, in American media, where if it's something that Palestinians say, then it requires verification. But if it's something the Israeli government says, then everybody just runs with it. It's as if it's self-evident that that's got to be true because the Israeli government said it. But the Israeli government has an extremely lengthy history of lying to justify their policies towards Palestinians. And it happened most blatantly, fairly recently, just last year, when that Palestinian-American journalist, Shirin Abu Akhle, was killed by an Israeli sniper, the first Israeli government response is that she was killed by Palestinian gunmen. That was obviously a lie. When that lie became clear, and the bullet in her was definitely an Israeli bullet, um, then they changed their story. Oh, she was caught in, in crossfire. She was in the middle of a conflict zone, and it was an accident. Oops, sorry. Then there were multiple investigations, media investigations, independent ones, they proved that there was no fire anywhere in the area. She was not caught in a crossfire. This was a fairly open area in which only Israeli soldiers could see them with no gunfire anywhere in the vicinity, and that she was targeted by Israeli sniper fire. Multiple sniper bullets in a very, very small range um, of space and time, um, kind of targeting her specifically in the spot between her helmet and her press vest. And at that point, there's no denying it, but you can see that they will bend over backwards to try to shield themselves from accountability through lies and to justify their monstrous actions. And that, I think, is another point of always taking everything the Israeli government claims with a grain of sand and to require independent verification of any claim they make, given that really ugly history of the way that they try, try to cover further crimes. That was another example of Western media just accepting and running with anything the Israeli government would tell them. The, just parroting all of those claims. And then when it came to that point where it's like, oh, maybe it wasn't a Palestinian gunman. Maybe it wasn't crossfire. Then I remember the New York Times just ran a report that said, well, Israel investigated uh, the, the situation and found they they were not responsible for any wrongdoing. 
<laughs> Why would you publish that? Like if roles were reversed, like they, they would never g- yeah. give the Palestinian Authority. Hamas looked into its raid and said we didn't do anything wrong. It's like, oops, okay, never mind. Yeah. Okay, out. all right, we're moving on. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nuts. And and honestly, there's an even more insidious claim that I'm sure I have not seen it widespreadly used yet, but I'm certain it's coming. It's this idea that Palestinian children die in Gaza because Hamas uses them as human shields. That's the claim. And this is such an incredible lie and uh, such gaslighting. Given the fact that it is Israeli policy, <clears throat> it is Israeli policy to use Palestinian civilians as human shields. It was the official policy up until 2005. Then the Israeli Supreme Court, you know, whenever Israelis would conduct trades in the occupied Palestinian territories, they would put Palestinian children in front of them in order to deter counterfire. And in 2005, the Israeli Supreme Court said, hey, guys, can't do that anymore. It's a, it's a violation of, of, of the laws of war. You've got to stop. And the Israeli military establishment appealed against that Supreme Court decision. They're saying we really have to use Palestinian civilians as human shields. It's really important. So now there is a, a, a twofold issue with that. First, it's obviously it's monstrous because they do it. That's the self-evident part. But the second part is that they keep telling you that Hamas does not care about Palestinian civilians. Well, if they don't care about Palestinian civilians, why do you want to put them in front of you when you're going into to fight these militants in the first place? They're lying about what they're telling you Hamas thinks about Palestinian civilians. It's just a blatant lie. And when it comes to what's actually happening in Gaza, and by the way, even though the Supreme Court banned it, um, Israel still uses it all the time. They were caught multiple times using it. In 2014, they grabbed a 10-year-old boy, same thing, during a raid in Gaza. And when the soldiers were caught doing it, um, Human Rights Watch described their punishment as a slap on the wrist, which tells you there is a, you know, wink, yeah, yeah, we're not going to do this anymore, but really just do it whenever you feel like you need to. That's the policy. And Hamas does operate in civilian areas. That is a self-evident fact. Um, as a guerrilla group that does not have fighter jets and tanks and all of that, they don't have the option to have an army to go face an Israeli army on the battlefield. That's not how they can operate because it's a besieged population without any advanced weaponry. So yes, they do embed themselves in civilian areas, but that is not the definition of human shields. Human shields is forcing civilians in front of you to hold them captive in order to prevent somebody else from attacking you. That's what a human shield is. And there has never been an instance Um, of Hamas actually going that far. And the reason why Palestinian civilians die in Gaza in the numbers that they do is because Israel engages in these massive indiscriminate campaigns of bombing of civilian areas, as documented by Amnesty International, as documented by Human Rights Watch, and as documented by even Israeli human rights organizations like B'Tselem. That policy, and by the way, beyond these uh, reports, it's Israeli soldiers themselves confessing to these crimes. There is a group called Breaking the Silence that is of Israeli soldiers who can't live, you know, their conscience is is tormenting them over their actions um, in the Palestinian territories in Gaza who come forward and confess to these crimes and their confessions about Gaza over and over again are about this kind of indiscriminate killing of not caring whether people are civilians or or militants that you're you're firing at in the on, in the opposite direction. Yeah, the the whole incident with Shireen Abu Akhli was so um such a, a instructive incident as well because we talk about Israel's total impunity when it comes to these kinds of things like committing these kinds of crimes whether it's the IDF or targeting journalists like this and it's the same it's the same kind of hypocrisy I mentioned when we claim to care uphold human rights of these things 
Um, we often hear, we use like uh, freedom of the press as this kind of cudgel to go after countries that we don't like and target them with sanctions and destabilization efforts. So when, when journalists are targeted in Russia, when we feel like journalism's, journalism is somehow being threatened in, uh, in places like Nicaragua or Cuba or wherever else, that gets used to justify this kind of intervention. But when our, our steadfast ally just openly assassinates journalists, that makes us look very bad. But as we saw with the US, like there's no actual consequences for these things. I've tried, I've, you always track this cycle of like when something happens that's so egregious that they can't really ignore. And you get this kind of like stern finger wagging or this kind of condemnation or we're very we're looking into this uh, situation and we're going to be we're going to be investigating and we're very concerned about the the you know journal the journalistic integrity or promoting this this kind of freedom and then that never actually amounts to anything and like that's that's time and time again when you're talking about any of these like a vast number of crimes that are committed by the Israeli government that's always the case right it's like it's if it's not ignored if it gets to a point where it's worthy of like discussal or some kind of like uh, routine condemnation. That's the most you're ever going to see is maybe a, maybe a stern, you know, we're looking into this. It's the Elon Musk thing. We're in, we're looking into this and like, that's, that's all it is. And that's all it, it ever comes down to. There's never any real accountability, never really any real consequences. Like you pointed out this the whole process of building these settlements in the first place is illegal. I think sometimes you have this mild condemnation from various leaders say, Hey, maybe can you stop, building these settlements, but this is just met with total refusal. The settlements go on, the cycle of violence continues, and that's all we can muster is kind of a stern, we're very concerned about this, and that's all. And it's just, it, it seems like this latest horror is just going to be another one of these cases. If it if it rises to the level that our leaders feel they need to comment on it, that's the most that we can ever hope to see for Palestinian people. Yeah, we can muster a lot more with a lot of other countries. We can impose crippling sanctions that devastate their populations. That we can do with other countries. But somehow when Israel is committing war crimes, it's oops, what are you going to do? The most you can say is, ah, we don't approve. We really are troubled. We're concerned. (laughs) That's the extent of it. It's a treatment of Israel as a country that is above the law and above rules. You know, you hear a lot from the pro-Israel crowd complaining about how Israel's critics are singling Israel out. It's entirely backwards. It is U.S. policy that singles out Israel as a country that can be above the rules and above the law. And that's fundamentally the problem. Uh, Receiving unconditional military funding, they never have to account for how that military funding is spent. Um, It's spent to carry out crimes that violate American policy preferences. U.S. policy, with the exception of Trump, is to oppose the building of settlements. And Israel just keeps building more and more settlements. They're working against what stated American policy is. And our response is, yeah, we don't like that. That's that's not great. But, you know, I guess we're just going to have to keep bankrolling it and, and seeing what happens. It's it's nuts. I'm wondering, I know you're limited on time, but if, if you could give listeners some context. We're seeing this play out now and actually be reported out fairly well in some prominent Israeli newspapers. Just the discontent with Netanyahu's government, with his previous uh comments, uh, strategy of, you know, kind of allowing uh, Hamas to flourish in hopes that that would divide Palestinians and divide Gaza. And, you know, that has certainly backfired and you're seeing many people speak out. A a poll published in in the, the Jerusalem Post says four out of five Jewish Israelis believe that the government and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu are to blame for the mass infiltration of Hamas terrorists and the massacre of Israel's South. Um, it's 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 interesting to see 
I, I think that and some of the the editorials that have come out explicitly calling for his his ouster, ex- explicitly laying this at his feet. Does that seem maybe I'm just a, a naive American consumer or news consumer, but it, does that seem relatively new in moments like this that that these papers would speak out? We should be clear about the fact that a lot of the Israeli discontent with with Netanyahu does not come from concern for Palestinians, which is a little bit of the problem. Unfortunately, Israeli politics, unlike in the U.S., by the way, in the U.S., younger people are far more progressive than the older generation. I mean, part of the problem here is that you have these dinosaurs who dominate um, the the political establishment. And as this generational shift takes place in Washington, I think you're going to see policy shift in a better direction. That is not the trajectory in Israel. Younger people are even more radical right-wing and anti-Palestinian than the older generation. And so their politics are drifting in a very, very different direction. Um, Discontent with Netanyahu has to do with a lot of domestic uh, disagreements about his policies. It's about his corruption. And um, ultimately, with something like this, it's about his failure to stop it. That's the concern. And what they mean by stop it is you weren't strict enough on Palestinians to prevent something like this from happening rather than we wish you had given Palestinians human rights or something like that was was less likely to happen in the future. So it's... um, I'm sure that Netanyahu is getting it from all sides right now. He's leading a fairly radical right-wing um, coalition government that is now becoming a unity government in prep, in, in, given the, the, the full-scale war that they have launched on Gaza. Um, I think the one thing that is worth spelling out here is that, and it's kind of insane to even use the words best-case scenario, best-case scenario now between the, the, within the range of options of what could happen next is the utter devastation of Gaza. That's things not completely spiraling out of control, which is a really, really horrifying prospect. Um, And beyond that, you have the entire sliding scale towards a regional war. If Hezbollah gets involved in Lebanon, um, if there is the prospect of direct Iranian confrontation, all of these things are, we are talking about mass devastation of the entire region in in a way that we've never seen before. That is on the table. And there's neocons that have wanted war with Iran for years now that see that as a possible prospect as well. And they're as bloodthirsty as ever to escalate that even more as well, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, Netanyahu would like to get Biden on the hook, trying to get all these commitments about Biden's involvement. And then now Netanyahu is the one who's, who's dropping bombs in Syria and Lebanon and elsewhere. It's, there is a push to try to provoke a bigger conflict, I think, by Netanyahu. Netanyahu is talking about this as a consequential war for the future of the Middle East. That's his rhetoric. He wants to change things once and Where for all. He before? wants to make sure that Israel does not face any challenge. I know. Yeah, exactly. But now what they're pushing for is more direct American involvement to try to reshape the Middle East in a way that Israel finds uh, to be more suitable for them. And you remember very well the last time we tried to do that with Iraq, how badly things got. And you bet Iran is a far more robust foe than Iraq ever was. And if that confrontation goes in that direction, we are lo- really looking at a uh, extremely ugly prospects for, for the Middle East. Obviously, Iran cannot defeat the United States in a military confrontation. That much is a fact. Nobody can. However, they can cause immense damage like nothing we've seen before. And yeah, things are things are looking very, very scary. And we need saner minds to step in to put the brakes on things, to demand a ceasefire, and to start working towards a sensible, just peace that prevents this slide towards more and more violence. It is horrifying and really dangerous to see, you know, Lindsey Graham on Fox last night explicitly calling for the U.S. to bomb Iran. I think CNN last night had John Bolton 
on to parrot similar uh, claims. Like this is these are that is extremely dangerous rhetoric in a moment like this that could really turn this from you know is uh, an Israeli Hamas fight to a regional or potentially uh, world war. That's just really reckless, but it shows where the Western media's priorities are because that would be for them that'd be really great for ratings, and that's what they care about. Uh, Omar, I know you're limited on time, but we really want to thank you for for joining us, helping us better understand what's happening. Always appreciate your your insight and analysis. Where can people follow you and find more of your work? Uh, thank you very much, Jordan. And I really appreciate your show and the platform that you provide also for voices that we don't hear from in mainstream media. Um, people can follow me on, I still refuse to call it X, so I'm just <laughs> going to say Twitter, at Omar yes. Badar is just my name. Um, and I'm on Instagram and YouTube as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Omar. Thank you.